Crypto is for everyone, not just rocket scientists, venture capitalists, and high IQ developers. Welcome to The Agenda, a Cointelegraph podcast that explores the promises of crypto, blockchain, and Web3, and how regular ass people level up with technology. It is hot outside. I mean, it is really hot this summer. The planet is on what seems to be a pretty clear path to soon reach 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming since pre-industrial times for the first time. A milestone number that the world's countries pledged to try to remain under in the 2015 Paris Agreement. Our continued burning of fossil fuels combined with the return of the El Nino weather phenomenon has created a dangerous cocktail of rising temperatures that have been breaking records all around the world. In fact, July 4 was the world's hottest day ever recorded, and according to one thing I saw, uh, possibly the hottest day in over 100,000 years. Scientists say that the only way to prevent the planet from remaining above 1.5 Celsius, or skyrocketing even higher, short of drastic and monumental geoengineering projects, is to rapidly phase out and completely and ultimately stop the burning of fossil fuels. But modern society requires massive amounts of power to operate. So where will all that energy come from if fossil fuels are no longer practical? The answer, according to organizations like Energy Web, lies in clean energy or energy that does not release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Now, EnergyWeb is a global nonprofit whose mission is to accelerate the shift to clean and distributed energy systems. And today we are joined by its CEO, Jesse Morris, who is here to talk to us all about climate change, decarbonization, and how blockchain may be able to accelerate the move to clean energy. So thank you so much for joining us, Jesse. And I'm not sure where you're based, but is it as hot there as it is everywhere else? Thank you, Jonathan and Ray, for having me. And uh, I'm sitting here in California which is uh, indeed, I was just in the Central Valley driving across the middle of the state, 115 degrees Fahrenheit, a scorcher. So yeah, I'm right there with it. Yeah. I know uh, Ray is based in Texas, and I was just in Texas about a week ago visiting some of my partner's family members, and it was awful. It was uh, 100 plus degrees. El Paso, Texas set a new record for the longest consecutive days 100 plus degree temperatures, Fahrenheit, of course, for those of you not in the U.S. And yeah, it just seems like everywhere this summer in particular is just incredibly hot. So maybe to set the set the, a little bit of a background for us before we talk into blockchain specifically and where that fits into this mission of uh, decarbonization, what is the current state of the energy sector in terms of how many fossil fuels we're still burning versus how much clean energy is being utilized? Where do we stand in terms of sort of the world's goals to uh, decarbonize? And how much further is there to go? Yeah, I'll start with the, the glass half full scenario, which is that over the past 10 years in particular, the globe taken as a whole has made truly unbelievable strides to transition the economy from where it has been which is one just like you summarized, Jonathan, one really just based on fossil fuels, really based on drilling into the ground, extracting what was dinosaur poop hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years ago, refining it, putting it into facilities, burning it, and using that steam to spin turbines and create electricity, putting it into our cars. That's the way the economy has really run for so long. 
And genuinely speaking, in the past 10 years in particular, we have just made massive strides going beyond that. Wind and solar energy are now the cheapest sources of energy, period, full stop. Don't talk about subsidy. Don't talk about anything. Renewable energy is the best just from the pure economic perspective. If we talk about things like electric vehicles, they are the fastest growing kind of new kind of car, new kind of asset in the global mobility space. Just absolutely shocking numbers. I'm here in California. One out of every, I think, seven or eight new cars on the road is an electric car now. And that's a new thing. If we keep just talking about all the different progress we've made, they don't get a lot of press time, but things like heat pumps. So these are basically air conditioning units that could be used to cool spaces or to heat up spaces. They run on electricity. They do it really efficiently. We can use heat pumps instead of things like natural gas to heat our buildings. Those are growing like gangbusters in places like Europe in particular. They're becoming the standard way that we do business. And if you look at the policy in the corporate kind of landscape too, as you said, Jonathan, lots of commitments in both developed economies, in emerging economies for really aggressive decarbonization targets. In, I mean, as soon as like 2030, you have countries coming out that have basically said we need to be at 80 to 100% renewable energy by dates as close as 2030. And on the corporate side, just look at, I feel like every day there's another announcement from some of these large corporate and technology companies. We think about Google, Microsoft, they are very loud and very aggressive about decarbonizing their own businesses, purely having nothing to do with policy or regulation. So there's a lot of good stuff going on, which is great. However, it's just not happening fast enough is the kind of bottom line. Look at what's happening right now with this absolutely and literally killer combination of El Nino with these different patterns that are going on with ocean surface temperatures and then just long-term trends on climate change. I really hope this does get the attention of other folks. There is clearly a connection between climate change and what's going on right now in the Northern Hemisphere. And bottom line is that progress has been great, but we're just not moving fast enough. Electric grids around the world still largely run on fossil fuels. Oh, the way we move cars and the way we move goods and the way we move people, if we're talking about planes or any of these different conveyances, still largely uses fossil fuels. So, you know, put another way, all of these different technologies and trends of adoption of these technologies, we've really hit the steep part of a kind of adoption curve of those things. But is it too little too late? That's kind of my perspective. I look at it. So we need to move faster on all of these trends if we really want to make a meaningful dent in climate change. So if tomorrow, right, the world were to come together and say, we are ready to switch to clean energy sources. It sounds like the technology exists for us to do that, but like, is the infrastructure in place to be able to handle the current electricity load and power load, never mind the fact that we're only getting hotter, it seems like, and we're going to have more electricity needs as more and more people rely on air conditioning sources. So if we wanted to switch at the drop of a hat, is that even feasible. It is absolutely feasible. And it's not a technology problem. It's a human problem and a political problem and one of bureaucracy and process would be my kind of high level answer. Do we have all of the big high voltage transmission lines that we need to move wind in the middle of the US, for example, to other places in the country where that cheap wind energy could be used to cool our homes or power our buildings? No, we don't have all the infrastructure that we need there. 
but we know how to build it. We have the resources to build it. In many places around the world, if those people were all around the table, I think they would agree there is a political and bureaucratic challenge in terms of making the decision to fully decarbonize the economy. And so we have the technologies to do it. We just don't yet have the collective will to do so. Got you. Maybe this is too big of a question for the very beginning, but what do you think it would take to have the collective will to make that transition? So I've been working on climate and energy my entire professional career. I mean, basically out of college, started working for a solar company, a couple of different consulting shops focused on renewables, and then a couple of different think tanks, basically doing research and some additional consulting with big energy companies to try and help them decarbonize. And my assumption, naive as it may have been for that whole time, was let's just get the economics right. Let's just make it so that all these technologies that can help us decarbonize are cost effective and businesses will just adopt them. Well, unfortunately, we're kind of in that situation and it's still not moving quickly enough. So, I mean, to your question, it's really tough because we really have hundreds of small problems that we need to now solve to overcome that collective will problem. So, for example, and I'm sure we'll get into this. One of the big things we work on at Energy Web is trying to make it just so that the electric grid is green. There's a lot of things that need to decarbonize in order to address climate change. We need to make sure planes are running on clean fuel. We need to make sure trucks are running on clean fuel. We need to make it more efficient for these big industrial facilities to use energy to create products and goods that we use every day. But one of the big overarching challenges is we just need our electricity to be green. And one of the ways we can make the electricity to be more green, the entire electric system, is to take this concept where let's say we have all of these different technologies that I was talking about earlier, electric cars, batteries, solar systems, heat pumps. If we have all those assets out there, which is kind of a naturally decentralized, distributed landscape with all of these assets that are out there, if we can network those things together digitally and basically use those to actually balance the grid instead of these big natural gas or coal-powered facilities, that's a really efficient way to manage the electricity system. Basically telling all of those different batteries and electric cars precisely when to and when to not use electricity. It's kind of like a big distributed decentralized battery. That's a really efficient and incredibly economically powerful tool for balancing the grid. We have a problem. Utilities have no idea how to do that. Our electric utilities today run these big centralized thermal power plants that send power one way to these homes. The concept I just talked about is those same utilities networking together millions upon millions of distributed decentralized assets owned by millions of different people and businesses, and then digitally networking those things together to balance the grid. That is a such a new concept. And again, there are hundreds of these kinds of new concepts that most of the incumbent energy companies just haven't wrapped their heads around yet. So this collective will problem, part of it is about willingness to move, willingness to adapt to this new reality. But part of it is that just from a pure kind of understanding perspective, these are new concepts, even if we have the technologies to solve them. And what we try and work on is to help the business community that would be sitting around that table that you referenced, Jonathan, we try to help that business community overcome some of these barriers and challenges so that they can embrace this new future. Thanks for explaining all of that in such great detail. And I, I do want to dig into a few things you said in order to get a bit more clarity against what are some common perspectives that people have regarding ESG and green technologies and so on and so forth. So you did mention that the infrastructure 
for a green society is not yet in place globally or even in the United States or even in Europe, not even in Northern Europe. So government's policies and their timestamps for hitting these ambitious targets have been shown to be somewhat unattainable because the infra is not there. Let's take, for example, the Dutch farmers revolting against the government's ESG objectives, or even what's happening in Ireland right now with sheep and cow farmers, where they're being told to cut back and to go green and to use more sustainable methods. But then at the same time, the country is opening up its markets to import Brazilian beef. We know that like clear cutting of rainforest in South America is something that's problematic and not good for the environment. So you kind of have this double standard or a contradiction where it's like, we can import cheaper beef from Brazil, which is not a very green place beyond the fact that it has a ton of jungles. But at the same time, we want our own farmers and domestic industry to go as green as possible, even if it's to their own detriment, right? So I just want you to give me your thoughts on that, because a common criticism I hear from anti-ESG folks when they look at Teslas and whatnot is they say the same thing you've said, which is most of green technology is reliant on not carbon neutral energy production processes. Therefore, your car might be green and operate off a battery, but the way you charge it, the way the battery's built, the way the car is built, everything about it is still heavily carbon reliant. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm pretty sure you probably come across those criticisms frequently also. Absolutely. And I think it's good that you're bringing these up, Ray, because there are choices that will need to be made and there are inherent contradictions in all of this transition. The examples you offered are real. We have progressive governments in some parts of the world enacting some green policies or wind energy and yet bolstering import of beef, which is one of the highest carbon footprint sources of calories in the world to that same country. So those contradictions exist. My expertise is really on the electric system specifically, and that is, frankly, the backbone of decarbonization. And I think that'd be important on this conversation more generally. All of these different topics have to be addressed in order us to fully decarbonize the economy. We need to figure out how to prevent uh, deforestation. We need to bring more trees and we need to work on reforesting certain areas. We need to transform our food systems the way that we use land. But a big part of the energy transition is simply just electrify everything. So before we talk about the carbon footprint of making a car and the fact that it uses carbon, which is totally right, what I think is really important for listeners to understand is that if we can electrify the entire economy, we get a huge increase to just efficiency. And the reason is things like electric motors are just way more efficient at performing useful work for society, but when I say work, basically creating electricity and using it in a certain way, then combustion. If you're using gas in a car, there's 90% of the energy contained in a unit of gasoline is lost by the time my butt sitting in a seat in that car is moving forward. If you use an electric car, because that conveyance is just more efficient using electricity, the process of converting stored energy into usable energy, the electricity is just more efficient. That 90%, I don't have the specific number offhand, but becomes something much closer to like 30 or 40%. So most of the energy that you use from a battery is actually being used to move forward instead of just being burned out the back. 
So the, I offer that example because one of the biggest things that needs to happen with the energy transition is we need to electrify everything. Cars need to be electrified. The way we heat buildings need to be electrified. And that's really the backbone of the energy transition. Now, with that being said, yes, some of these things still use carbon. When Tesla makes cars, those facilities are powered by not 100% renewable energy. And all of the different products and stuff coming into that Tesla car, of course, come from a complex supply chain. It doesn't use all renewable electricity. But because those cars are so efficient, the kind of net calculation, so what is the lifetime impact of driving an electric car, including all of the carbon that came into like the supply chain versus just driving a Prius, the Tesla or the electric car will win on kind of a net basis. Now, that sort of thinking doesn't apply to all the other things you were talking about, specifically with food and these other sectors and like losing these forests and carbon. There's a lot of complexities and feedback cycles there. But if we're just talking about what is often repeated, which is while electric cars use a lot of carbon to make in the first place, batteries take a lot of energy to make. That's true, but decision makers and in, indeed myself, we look at those kinds of calculations and are asking, is the net benefit from a carbon perspective of these technologies positive? The answer is yes. And there is a lot of nuance in those answers and there are many studies, but generally speaking, that's not something that keeps me up at night. What keeps me up at night is how can we keep the lights on in places like Texas right now, what grids are nearing completely overloaded, the grid is not fully renewable, and people are literally dying because it's too hot outside. Those are the problems we should be focused on solving. Getting caught in these headline-grabbing arguments that seem to be happening in the past few months about, you know, what is the life cycle carbon footprint of an electric car? Those calculations have been done. What I'm picking up from you is it sounds like there's a messaging issue from policymakers and from green companies. And of course, we live in an age where people are resistant and don't like facts, right? And people aren't like sitting down and reading books as much as they used to. But it sounds like governments need to do a better job of the messaging needs to change. So it's one step at a time. It's every little effort helps in the long run. It's changing, not even really changing the perspectives, but putting out that some of those impactful kind of data points that you shared with us into the wider public regularly and also into school curriculum and so on in order to help people develop a more balanced perspective and understanding. Because on one side, you have people that are like, we already hit the threshold. There's no turning back. There's no point in trying. It's like recycling. Sometimes I'm like, why should I recycle? Because there's already like, I can recycle one sheet of paper, but there's like reams and reams and reams to the ceiling of paper already printed at Walmart. So what difference does it actually make, right? So I think that what you're getting at here is that change is attainable, but governments need to message better and also set their milestones in a way that are more achievable for companies that are you know working in this space. So thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, I think that's a great synthesis, Ray. The only other thing I would offer is that in addition to changing the narrative around the energy transition, also just focusing on deployment, regardless of the, the where you fall on the political spectrum in the US in particular, the Biden administration has done some absolutely wild stuff in terms of creating incentives for more of these green products to be manufactured here in the US for trying to get more of this physical infrastructure built for making investments in companies that are creating all these green products that will transform the way we do business. So in addition to changing the messaging, governments around the world, 
I hope, will just continue pouring kind of public investment dollars into these technologies instead of continuing to subsidize fossil fuels. That's something that also needs to happen. I think this idea of a, a messaging problem is sort of an interesting transition to kind of get into the blockchain aspect. Everything, as we all know, blockchain itself has somewhat of a messaging problem, something we've discussed on our podcast before. There is no CEO of Bitcoin. There is no CEO of blockchain. It's kind of a free-for-all. And in that free-for-all, oftentimes the message that gets across is blockchain is environmentally unfriendly with zero nuance involved, that Bitcoin is environmentally unfriendly, again, with zero nuance involved, that crypto punks are destroying the planet because they're on Ethereum. Again, maybe not understanding that Ethereum is now proof of work, things like this. So I do want to ask a little bit about the critiques of blockchain later, but to start with, could you give us maybe a broad overview of EnergyWeb and what it does and how blockchain fits into all of it? And I guess I'll just lead that question with saying that I was looking at your website and I saw that there are three specific sort of areas of focus that EnergyWeb focuses on being asset management, data exchange, and green proofs. So maybe you can break down the overview of EnergyWeb and then get into what those three things mean and how blockchain helps in those solutions. Definitely. So by way of brief background, we started EnergyWeb back in 2017 and EnergyWeb was spun out of another nonprofit called RMI or Rocky Mountain Institute where I used to work. And that organization just focused on the energy transition, basically a, a research organization that is focused on helping companies figure out how to decarbonize. Back in 2017, myself and many others started getting introduced to this concept of blockchain, which was pretty new back then, but also all of these other technologies and open source technologies. And a big hypothesis started to form for us, which was, you know what? We don't think these big corporates that we're trying to get to decarbonize need to be told what to do. They need to be given tools in order to decarbonize. And so that's where EnergyWeb came from. And what we do, and our mission has been the same since back then, is we build open source software solutions to help big energy companies decarbonize. That's what we do. And blockchain and other Web3 technologies play a key role in our technology stack. And I'll speak about that in a minute. But really, if you think about, so you mentioned some of the solutions, Jonathan, we have identified over the past six years, some really specific challenges that these corporates face. And we use our open source stack to overcome those challenges. And I think that's worth noting, especially because this is a, a crypto and, and blockchain kind of podcast. We started Energy Web back in 2016, 2017, which was, again, like the whole ICO craze, lots of different stuff going on, some good, some bad in the crypto space. And we were just experimenting. We said, OK, we've got this big ecosystem of some of the world's largest energy companies who have come to us and were working with us to experiment with blockchain and these other technologies. So we had hundreds of different use cases that we thought blockchain and these other Web3 technologies could help with. We basically spent many years experimenting with all these different companies, including some of the world's biggest energy companies. Shell is one of our biggest partners that we've worked with for many different years. Uh, I'm sitting here in California. We've done projects with the California ISO, which is the utility that runs the grid for the entire state. Uh, if we flip over to Asia Pacific, we could work with PTT, which is Thailand's uh, nationalized oil company. So we work with all of these big energy companies and electric utilities. And what we've learned over those six years of experiments is we've found three really good use cases for our technology stack. So we've really zeroed in on where we think these open source decentralized techs can create value. 
we stop doing all the other stuff. So the three examples are pretty simple. So one of them is just about, we call it green proofs. So what's happening is in the energy transition, there's a variety of these different supply chains for new products and the supply chains are pretty complicated. So I'm talking about things like sustainable aviation fuel. So this is fuel that goes into planes that doesn't come from fossil fuel. It comes from things like plants. So it's a biofuel, very complex supply chain. How do you track where all of this planes came from, where the fuel was refined, which airlines are using it? Other products are things like we actually have a project called Green Proofs for Bitcoin, where we are helping Bitcoin miners prove that they actually use renewable electricity to create individual Bitcoins. So that's another kind of really complex supply chain that has this greenness associated with it. And there are others, things like green hydrogen. There are things like tracing how green the materials were that came in to create a battery. So basically, those are just examples of these complex supply chains. And what we do is we have this green proof solution that helps market participants track all these different components of these green proofs and prove where they come from. And in that case, blockchain plays a pretty key role. We use blockchains to actually just create tokens that represent those assets. So basically, if I'm a fuel producer, I log in, I register, I upload data, a on-chain representation of that data is then used and can be moved around that ecosystem to sort of track who owns the digital certificate representing that unit of green fuel, for example. So that's green proofs is one of our use cases. The other one is this data exchange solution. And that's what I was referencing a bit earlier in our conversation when I talked about all of these different assets that can be networked together to balance the grid. So again, to recap, for the electric grid, the way we balance the grid right now is pretty rudimentary. We all come home, we go to the office, we turn on the lights, we use the fridge, we use electricity. And what happens on the other side for these utilities, they have people sitting in control rooms, sometimes assisted by computers, turning up and down the output of thermal power plants. So these are big coal facilities, natural gas facilities, sometimes big hydroelectric facilities. And that's how we balance the grid. We got to keep that in balance. Like that's how the electric grid works. The opportunity we have is we have all these new assets coming online. So things like electric vehicles, batteries, heat pumps. And the idea is if you network all of those assets together, because these are things that are already out there in the real world that can plug into the wall, and you use those to tell them to use or not use electricity at very specific times of the day, you can use that distributed fleet of assets to balance the grid instead of turning up and down that thermal power plant. And if we do that, we save money because those power plants are expensive to run. We don't use carbon because the assets are just using electricity. They're not generating electricity using coal or natural gas. And it's just a much better way to run the grid. The problem is most electric utilities do not have the digital infrastructure, not physical infrastructure, but digital infrastructure necessary to go out there, talk to all those devices, send price signals to all those devices, make it so that data can be exchanged between all those devices to trust that they're doing the right things at the right time. And that's where we come in. So we have a solution called our data exchange solution that just makes it really easy for all of those digital relationships to be formed and for data to pass between those different assets and organizations. The way that blockchain and Web3 is used there, specifically, we use this concept of self-sovereign identity. So it's a digital identity standard that is very much a Web3 kind of architecture. And it's sort of in the field of getting away from the Web2 model of, I just trust Google to handle my login to all of my digital life, or I just trust Facebook to handle my single sign-on to all of my digital life. In our world, the way it works is each of these companies use their own unique digital identity to enroll into these different solutions. 
in order to be trusted to exchange data. So that's for your listeners. I'm sure they're familiar with things like self-sovereign identity, decentralized identifiers, Basically, these approaches to identity management where enterprises as individuals own their like online identity versus delegating that to Google or Facebook or something like that. So that's a core Web3 technology, and it's a part of that data exchange solution. We have one other solution that's very simple to explain. It's just called asset management. Look, a lot of these energy companies have a lot of different physical assets in the field, and the way that they track those assets right now are glorified spreadsheets. So you literally have somebody sitting in a room filling up information about, well, we have these devices sitting in the field and they have these characteristics about them. They're kind of static databases. What we've done in partnership with some telco companies, we basically use SIM cards to give those same devices a digital identity and then use blockchain to track those identities. So you have these SIM cards that are communicating to a blockchain about what is this asset, who owns it, when has it been updated, when has it been managed? And all of that information is communicated to a blockchain so that everybody can trust that data. So that's kind of a rapid spin around our three different solutions. And I think what would be really interesting, again, to underline is we started like many other crypto and blockchain players saying, we think blockchain can solve all this stuff. We think it has all these different use cases. And over the past six years, we frankly, 98% of those hypotheses, we struck down and said, nope, these Web3 technologies have a very narrow role that they can fulfill. So now we pair those with even traditional Web2 technologies, all in service of solving these problems for these big energy companies. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. I guess just starting with what you literally just said. <laughs> I think that's great. And that's kind of the theme of this podcast almost is like everybody I feel like who's in crypto has a phase at some point where they say blockchain is going to change literally every single aspect of the world. Some people stay in that phase. Some people get completely disillusioned and leave crypto entirely. And I, I won't necessarily speak for Ray, but at least where I am is that maybe a lot of what I assumed when I first came in might not pan out or might not uh, even be necessary as a tendency to, to create solutions where problems don't exist or other things actually work better. So yeah, that's kind of the point of the show in a sense is to find those niche use cases where blockchain does actually make a real and practical difference in the lives of people. The other thing that caught my attention was what you were saying about how a lot of these corporations and utility companies especially don't have the digital infrastructure to transition and to digitally manage the decarbonization process, I guess I would say. And I feel like I've heard stories of just utility companies or especially nuclear power plants that are using like floppy disks and like <laughs> things like that, this really outdated software. I've heard plenty of stories of governments just not even being able to innovate technologically because they have contracts with certain service providers and they simply cannot change from Windows 98 to whatever because they have a 20-year contract with the, the IT service provider to run Windows 98. So I guess there's a few questions I could ask, but on that topic, do you run into any sort of resistance when you pitch open source, blockchain, decentralized technology to maybe a legacy infrastructure provider? Do they even know what it is? And are there any sort of uh, bureaucratic, maybe problems that get in the way of this sort of digital transition that you're speaking of? So when we come in, 
And if I was talking to an executive at an energy company and you saw my deck where I was talking about these solutions and kind of the challenges we helped them overcome, we don't mention blockchain. We don't mention Web3. We don't mention self-sovereign identity, decentralized identifiers. We don't talk about tokens. We are relentless. And it's just, look, we figured out these different challenges that we're pretty sure we can help you overcome. Which one of those is most interesting to you? And then we dig in on it. And we talk about how, oh yeah, we've started to produce a lot of hydrogen lately, but we have no idea how to prove whether or not that hydrogen was produced using natural gas, which has a lot of carbon, or whether or not that hydrogen was produced using solar and wind energy. Can you help us figure that out? Yes. Now, there always comes a natural time in those conversations when you're working with these enterprises where traditionally, somebody who you're definitely picturing here, Jonathan, is a 20-year veteran information technology professional who has gone from floppy disk to CD-ROM to iPod to whatever, and it says, okay, talk to me about your technology. What are you using to actually pull this off? And that's where we go into our full tech stack. And that's where we talk about, okay, look, blockchain is being used very specifically for this function. Decentralized identifiers are being used very specifically for this function. We're actually using a traditional database for this function. So those conversations happen at the technology level. But from my perspective, I have become much more of, I think, a healthy Web3 and blockchain and crypto skeptic because there have been just so many promises and so few kind of fulfillments of those promises in many cases. But on the other side, we have found very precise ways in which these technologies can create value. So our approach is, why would, uh, if I was walking into pitch and I worked for Amazon, am I going to talk about some microservice available on Amazon Web Services to convince one of the world's biggest energy companies to use my software? Of course not. And that's where I still get a little bit confused with evangelists or Web3 stuff going around and talking about how wonderful blockchain is, how wonderful their individual blockchain is or their token. Our approach is focus on the problems that these enterprises have and how we can solve them. And then, of course, be very transparent about how we think blockchain and Web3 can solve those problems. But again, that's been our experience and that we just have a lot fewer bureaucratic hurdles if all these companies have to do is sign a contract and you send them an invoice to build something for them. Versus, no, 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 you got to custody tokens, and then you got to figure out how to stake those tokens. And then you got to set up governance around that so that when somebody within your company leaves the company, they don't walk around with the private key for those to, right? Forget all of that. You do not want to deal with that. So we're really relentless about simplifying that user experience for enterprises and just focusing on solving problems for them. So speaking of the tech stack itself that Energy Web relies on, now, given that your mission is to transition to clean energy... How do you ensure that the sort of blockchains that you're using or the protocols that you rely on are themselves carbon neutral or using clean energy or not contributing to climate change? Do you specifically seek out blockchains that are maybe proof of stake or that or the validators are using renewable energies? Like, how do you as an organization work to ensure that the technology you're using doesn't add to the problem? So I'll answer that for Energy Web, but then it also might be interesting to zoom out and just talk about kind of the energy consumption conundrum and blockchain more generally, because we've done quite a bit of work there. So for Energy Web, our kind of solution to that crypto and blockchain and energy consumption problem is pretty simple. The primary blockchain that we use in our ecosystem is this thing called the Energy Web chain. So this is an Ethereum clone, and instead of using proof of work or proof of stake, it uses what's called proof of authority. And all that means is that it's a public blockchain. Anybody can use it. Anybody can build on it. 
but the validators on it, there's no miners or stakers. They are just these large energy companies that are running the client for the blockchain. That blockchain uses about as much electricity on an annual basis as a small office building. So it's super, super efficient. And I would actually extend that. In the blockchain space, most blockchains today, if you just look at the pure count, right, are using proof of stake consensus or different consensus mechanisms that frankly don't use a lot of electricity. So before you even talk about is the electricity coming from wind or solar or hydro or fossil fuels, step back for a minute. Most of these blockchains are very efficient because they're not using proof of work. The one exception to that, of course, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin uses proof of work consensus and is a massive consumer of energy. But generally speaking, for the whole kind of broad blockchain and energy consumption question, most blockchains are very efficient now, except for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin does become pretty interesting, right? Because I don't know about you guys, I don't see proof of work going away anytime soon for the Bitcoin community. And so our contribution to that community has been, you're not going to change blockchains. You're not going to move to a more efficient one. You're not going to change the Bitcoin consensus mechanism. Okay, let's just try and create an environment where Bitcoin miners can prove that they're actually using renewables. Typically what happens now is you see miners go on and maybe they have a sustainability report that's a beautiful PDF on their website that says, hey, don't worry, we're renewable. Here are these certificates we've bought. Let's move on. What we've tried to do instead is actually we've created two different rating systems. So we actually score Bitcoin miners now on how green they are. And we issue them verifiable credentials that sit on a blockchain that kind of show the proof of here's the information that was submitted. Here's how much renewable energy they used. Here's where their mining facilities are. And that initiative is called Green Proofs for Bitcoin. And the environment we're trying to create here is these Bitcoin miners all have these certifications that show that for a given year that they are renewable. And the idea is we want to help financial organizations build kind of derivatives on top of those certifications. So we're not interested in like a green Bitcoin class or anything like that. Like one Bitcoin is just like one other Bitcoin completely. That's the world we're playing in. But what we're trying to do is create an environment where a financial organization might have a product or service and they only offer that product or service to their customers. And there's only Bitcoin from certified green miners that are a part of that product or service. So that's the kind of environment we're trying to create with this Green Proofs for Bitcoin initiative. And again, just zooming back, like the reason we focus there is because from our perspective, the blockchain and energy consumption problem has been largely solved because most blockchains have moved away from proof of work consensus, which just by virtue of the technology uses very little electricity. That really leaves Bitcoin as the big kind of energy consumption problem. Thanks for explaining all of that to us. The kind of three major use cases or even one major use case that Energy Web Token has, what I really take away from that beyond like kind of the instant applicability of all that is that this project is doing a lot behind the scenes building and making real relationships with companies and attempting to help them in their process to go green the next question i wanted to ask you was what are some of the major roadmap objectives that energy web aims to achieve by the end of 2024 You kind of already said our biggest objective, Ray, which is build deep lasting relationships with these enterprise customers and get them to embrace these open source solutions that happen to be leveraging some of these Web3 technologies. So a big focus for us is commercially, is on the enterprise side, and it's continuing to make sure that we're solving problems 
that are real for these organizations. There's no roadmap with that, but that's very much our one of our biggest focus. If we flip over to the technology side, there is some really cool Web3 blockchain stuff going on that I think would be interesting. So I mentioned we have this thing called the Energy Web Chain, this existing blockchain. We're actually building another one, and it's going to be part of the Polkadot ecosystem. So we're in the midst of developing another blockchain called Energy Web X. This is just going to be another blockchain that's hopefully connected to the Polkadot relay chain that's out there. So in kind of Polkadot terms, for those who are familiar with it, this will be a parachain in the Polkadot ecosystem. And this blockchain will be connected to and supporting all of the use cases I've talked about here, but it's just going to be using totally different technology. And the context there is Ethereum virtual machines are tried and true. Our blockchain, we launched in 2018 with this big community of different market participants. Substrate, which is a technology that powers a lot of the blockchains or all of the blockchains in the Polkadot ecosystem, that's like bleeding edge Web3 tech. And we have actually found some really interesting ways to use Substrate for enterprise applications. So top of our agenda is deploying Energy Web X, uh, hopefully by Q4 this year. And then with that deployed, we also have a pretty interesting mechanism we've developed whereby retail, we haven't talked much about the retail community because we're an enterprise-focused project, but we're actually creating a mechanism whereby anyone who holds Energy Web tokens can stake their tokens against some of these different solutions I've described and help work on the energy transition themselves. And to just spend a, a minute on that, one of the biggest new technologies we're bringing to life that's connected to this Energy WebEx blockchain, we call them worker node networks. And what these are, are they're individual collections of nodes that actually look kind of like blockchains, but they're not blockchains. And they're individual collections of nodes that are performing specific work for some of these energy companies. So for example, we work with some energy companies that want to prove that they have a building over here on the right side that uses electricity. And on the left side, you've got a bunch of different renewable energy assets that are providing electricity to that building. What we have developed is a solution that performs matching between, it's almost like an order book. If you kind of think about like a cryptocurrency exchange order book, one side of the order book is the building using electricity. The other side of the order book are these renewable energy facilities providing energy to that facility. The way this works typically is like there'd be a nice user interface with these beautiful buildings. It looks like an Animal Crossing kind of image or something like that from one of the video games. And you can see these wind turbines, you know, sending electricity to these different buildings and it looks very nice. You can't verify that. It's impossible to verify. How do I know that that beautiful user interface you're showing me actually is, you know, matching renewables from these different facilities? You can't verify it. So what we've done is we use these worker node networks to perform useful work for these businesses. In this example, those worker nodes are performing that matching. So they're ingesting data about where that wind and solar is, and they're ingesting data about how much electricity is that building using, and they're conducting that matching in a way that is publicly verifiable so that everybody can see that, oh, yeah, 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 that facility's over here, that wind facility's over here, we're conducting that matching. So that concept of worker node networks requires a bunch of different computers to be running that work in parallel so that it's more of a decentralized environment so that all those nodes can trust each other. That's basically what we're doing with Polkadot. That's this Energy Web X concept. And what's really cool is that anybody in the world is going to be able to take Energy Web tokens, stake them, and run one of those worker nodes as a part of that solution. So that's to kind of tie everything together. That's maybe the biggest, most exciting thing going on the Web3 side of the Energy Web roadmap is 
yes, we're working with all these enterprises, but we've also figured out a way to involve retail holders of tokens to actually stake those tokens and put them to work in a way that's actually valuable for these energy companies. Most staking environments is I'm going to take tokens, stake them and earn my APY. Thank you very much. Right. And additional tokens are almost printed out of thin air in a lot of these different staking protocols. What we're trying to do here is create an environment where, wait a minute, enterprises are actually paying for these solutions that create proof that something in the real world is true. And so basically those payments come from these enterprises for these enterprise solutions, and they actually flow back to these people and companies who have staked tokens and are running these worker nodes. So there's, there's a lot more information we have about this online, but again, zooming back, this is the big focus for us from a technology perspective in the next two quarters is bringing this Energy Web X blockchain live and as many of these different examples of worker nodes live as well that, again, are each connected to a real-world enterprise application. There's a lot of alpha drop there, and you also covered a lot of questions that I had regarding the token because I was wondering what was the purpose of Energy Web Token, but then I know a lot of projects are legally restricted from talking about token or price, or they don't like to talk about token price utility or even profit distribution to token holders, so on and so forth. So part of my assumption was that just like a lot of projects in the ICO age, this was a way to bootstrap and fundraise and create roadmap and launch. And then the token has limited utility to holders, but perhaps some utility between well, within enterprise solutions. But you've kind of explained that that's not the case. So with the shift to Polkadot, are you now running two different blockchains, one on Ethereum and one on Polkadot? What sort of interoperability will there be? Like, is there a cross-chain bridge between Energy Web token on Polkadot versus Energy Web dApps on Ethereum? Will token holders need to like go through a mainnet upgrade and migrate their tokens to Polkadot? And it sounds like you've navigated the kind of legal concerns and the regulatory concerns that exist around tokens and giving token holders something for staking or for holding token. That's all kind of like new news to me. Most projects don't want to talk about their tokens and what they want to do with them or what they're able to do with them. So feel free to answer any of that or run away from any of it. I'm okay with either. No, definitely. Those are great questions. Maybe I'll start with the Polkadot piece and then talk about the tokens. So on the Polkadot piece, the best way to think about what we're doing here is two blockchains, one token. So basically the environment is that Energy Web Chain will keep running because there are enterprises using the Energy Web Chain and they have their own applications on there. Energy Web tokens will be able to be lifted to Energy Web X, which is the new parachain that will be connected to Polkadot. Lifting and lowering tokens is a concept that was developed by this organization called Aventus. They're another Web3-focused enterprise shop in that Polkadot ecosystem as well, and we're working with them. So basically, the concept here is, no, there's not another token being created here or anything. It's just that if those tokens are going to be used in the Polkadot environment, they need to be lifted from the Energy Web chain over to Energy Web X. And that's very similar to a bridge, um, is the way that that works. So the token interaction will be relatively straightforward on that front. Just zooming back, like in zooming out on the token front in general, 
So we're Energy Web Foundation is a Swiss-based nonprofit, and we worked very closely with FINMA, which is the Swiss regulator there, from beginning to end. Uh, there was no ICO for Energy Web, so the entire project was focused on just getting these enterprises to work with our community from day one. And the entire focus of the reason we incorporated in Switzerland was to, with this community, bring utility to this token. So the utility kind of falls down in two categories right now. They're pretty simple. So the first one is, just like Ethereum, Energy Web tokens have to be used to run any of these applications or solutions that I'm talking about on the Energy Web chain. If you are storing verifiable credentials on the Energy Web chain, if you are creating second layer tokens on the Energy Web chain that represent something in the real world, you've got to use Energy Web tokens to pay those gas fees and other transaction costs. That's a big piece. And then on the other side, what I was talking about more like with this polka dot piece is that these tokens are just going to be used to power these worker node networks. If I'm an enterprise and I'm using that renewable energy matching application that we were just talking about, right? I want to be able to trust that those nodes are out there and performing useful work for my application. So staking is like a great use case there. And if you think about it, just put on an enterprise lens, enterprises force companies to like use the concept of escrow all the time. If you're a service provider and you have a service level agreement, you got to put something in escrow. That's why staking actually makes sense for some of these enterprise users, because you can create an environment whereby if they choose the enterprise users, they can require these nodes to stake some economic value. So again, the staking function actually makes very good business sense for a lot of these different use cases. And that's why we're including it um, as part of our ecosystem. And since we have the Energy Web token, and not I'm just saying we as the foundation, but again, there are 50 companies running nodes on this Energy Web chain that have all built solutions around the Energy Web token. And so they're using it too. And then this is another utility for those different tokens. Okay, that makes sense. Because I was going to say, do you actually... So it's not just the foundation... Right, right. That makes sense. A, a few other questions I had were, do you actually need tokens? Doesn't this raise concerns for your enterprise level partners who are now kind of involved with other investors they don't know or might not want connection to? But it sounds like enterprise partners using Energy Web Solution can kind of buy or order their own tranche of tokens. And then within their own ecosystem, within their own client base, the whole staking option is something between like Shell and gas stations, which are, <laughs> you know, taking money or putting money into green infra and can also operate nodes. Like I still see this as the concept might be offensive, but it's like a permissioned blockchain or a permissioned ecosystem where enterprise solution uses tokens within their own kind of business model to run nodes via staking. It's not the type of thing where me and every other retail pleb who's trading tokens is also going to stake them to <laughs> nodes and then have some ownership of EWT profits or EWT enterprise partner profits. It's a little bit of both, actually. And the second part is a little bit experimental, but I'd love to talk about it. So the first part, you nailed it, Ray. We give the enterprises full flexibility on how they want to configure these solutions, right? So if they don't want to touch energy web tokens and they just want to work with us or other partners to run some of these applications and almost outsourced how these worker nodes work, that's fine. That's totally their decision. If they actually want to be the company that's running the solution and they want to use tokens in different ways, that's also fine. 
So all of our solutions are fully flexible. And because again, the best way to lose a contract with one of these companies is to come in and say, this is the only way that you can do business with me, right? So total flexibility on the enterprise side, um, because as you're saying, for a lot of these companies, dealing with crypto and custodying tokens just doesn't make sense. So they deal completely in fiat and anything that needs to happen with tokens and everything is just completely behind the scenes or done with another partner. On the retail side, though, I mean, we are actually trying to create, again, when I say we, it's our entire ecosystem, trying to create a bridge between retail holders and these enterprise solutions. So Ray, actually, there will be an opportunity for any, but I don't know what language you use there, but Joe Schmo off the street, who happens to be holding some of these tokens, will be able to stake them and run some of these nodes. Absolutely. Now, will all of those nodes be used by those enterprise partners? I don't know, because at the end of the day, these enterprises are going to decide which nodes do they want to use? Do these nodes need to be geofenced and only in a specific country? Because many of these enterprises have specific requirements. Are they going to require those node operators to go through some kind of KYC? Probably. What are the staking thresholds going to be? They're going to be different. So again, the environment we're trying to create here is where any of these different kind of worker networks can be configured. And some of the first ones will be launched and anybody will be able to run these worker nodes. But the whole idea is at the enterprise's decision at the end of the day, how they want to configure them. Thanks for explaining all that. I think there's a lot of useful alpha in that for people who are kind of looking for projects um, from the long side. And another thing I thought that was interesting that you mentioned is that you guys stepped into kind of experimenting and ideating with how can we use blockchain in 2017 or 2016, and that was six years ago. And it should be a reminder to people that are interested in crypto that tomorrow's not the day that these things go mainstream and projects, even though they might not be successful for two or three bull market cycles, depending on what how you define success as an investor, it's still a new industry. And it could take six to 10 years or 15 years for any of these projects that launched in 2016 to actually blow up and mainstream and be successful in the future. So I think there's value in just looking beyond token price and TVL and market cap and looking at what is the actual project, what is its market fit, what is the viability of its solution, what are their milestones and are they achieving them and aligning that with trends and macro and across the globe also. So keep at it. So I have one other question for you. Like any nascent industry or sector, crypto is also filled with multiple boom and bust cycles. And you alluded to that at the beginning of our conversation. We've seen this with meme coins. We've seen this with the Ethereum ICOs. We've seen this with healthcare and supply chain blockchain tokens. And now we're seeing the same sort of euphoria driven hype cycle with AI, right? Like everybody's into chat GBT and there's all these AI tokens and stocks are going gangbusters based off their affiliation or mention of AI. Like it's, it's the hot thing right now. So has that been the same with environmental protection focused blockchain projects? How many of you are out there? How many were there in 2016? How many are actually making good on their promise and ticking off those boxes? What's your vision into that? So if I look back to 2016, we did a pretty comprehensive report looking not just at Energy Web, but also internationally, what other, at the time, they were called energy blockchain projects were out there. And the list from that report, I could probably still find it, I'm sure it's sitting on the internet somewhere, was there were 200 individual companies and projects focused on the Venn diagram of 
sustainability, blockchain, crypto. And my knowledge of those 200, there are two left today, and we're one of them. So I think that says something, right? That a sustainable business model wasn't able to be found. How much of that was hype versus exploration? We experienced that even on our own. We had to throw out 95 to 98% of the proof of concepts and experiments we did over the past six or seven years until we really zoomed in and said, wait a minute, this is where we can create value. These are real problems we can solve, right? We went on our own version of that journey. The other thing I would say now is I watch with a careful eye news about kind of this latest batch of uh, sustainability and blockchain projects. Um, they're not so much on the energy blockchain side, but there's been a lot of development and activity, although it's hard for me to tell how much of it is real, on carbon, right? So lots of projects looking at this voluntary carbon market. For example, you know, how do you tokenize a unit of forest or a tree or an afforestation project and use that tokenization to bring more trust into this voluntary carbon market? We as the foundation have not touched that, and that's intentional because Forget blockchain, that market's very complicated and there's a lot of issues with reliability and verifiability and tracking all of those data flows. And then even within the crypto space, I have been given presentations from many of the companies that are in this carbon and crypto kind of nexus. I still have not seen anything that really convinces me that there's something interesting there. And to put it another way, I have yet to see a killer use case for Web3 or blockchain that has been articulated by those other companies out there. So it does feel to me like a little mini sustainability crypto hype cycle again, but um, time will tell. It's interesting you say that because that answers a question that I kind of had in the back of my mind, which is, does Energy Web have anything to do with carbon credits, which has been one of the, as you said, the more hyped up use cases for blockchain at the moment. And I was curious as to why there was nothing on the website that specifically that I could see specifically mentioned carbon credits. And I guess you just answered the question of uh, why that might be. I'm very skeptical, very skeptical. Even from this conversation, you probably notice we are applying our technology to new green product supply chains where they're kind of all the players in that industry are at the table and they're trying to create a mutually agreed upon way of tracking some new product. The Green Bitcoin Initiative is a great example of that. The work we're doing on um, sustainable aviation fuel, that's a great example of that. If you look at the voluntary carbon market, that has been there for a while. There are a number of institutions using a variety of different technologies and standards to track and trace everything. And I'm not an expert on that market, but it seems like everybody's yelling at each other for a variety of reasons. And then into that ecosystem comes new startups that are claiming to use crypto and blockchain to solve these legacy problems. That's why we've stayed out of it to this stage. And I really hope that blockchain and Web3 can create some value there. I really do. I just haven't seen it yet personally. I want to harpen back a little bit further back into our conversation where you, you mentioned at one point that what keeps you up, might be paraphrasing, but what keeps you up at night is more so the questions of how do we keep a state like Texas's energy grid up so that people don't die because their AC goes out in the middle of a heat wave, right? Kind of more back to the practical day-to-day -day implications of our warming planet and our changing climate. And it seems like at this point, I sometimes have a hard time not being skeptical of our humanity's ability to tackle these massive uh, long-term problems. And so it seems like we have certainly baked in a certain degree, a certain level of warming. Now, what that level of warming will be is I think where the real question is. 
because there's a huge difference between 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius of warming and well, maybe the extreme worst case scenario that seemed more like it could have happened a few years ago if nothing had changed where we hit like five degrees of warming by the end of the century, which would dramatically change humans' ability to even exist as a species, even just in terms of like our ability to breathe the air and evaporate sweat and things like that. So it seems like the question more is, to what point can we limit the amount of warming? And part of that is obviously decarbonizing so that we don't go any further. But part of that is also adapting to the levels of warming that we will be facing no matter what. So is there anything in the energy web tech stack or elsewhere in blockchain or distributed technology that can help us adapt to a warmer climate? Like one thing that popped into my head would be maybe like microgrids with batteries that are able to better manage the kind of extreme ebbs and flows to the energy grid that will come from more use of cooling solutions, anything like that kind of cool that Energy Web is working on or that other projects that you may be aware of are working on? Yeah, I share the kind of potential existential dread that that could be from this wild level of warming. And we are very much focused on the mitigation side. So digitize these systems, get more renewables out there, drive down the amount of carbon. But to- you're completely right. Adaptation is going to be key. Our data exchange solution is doing exactly what you're kind of thinking there, Jonathan. So even though I described it as being able to network together all of these assets over a huge geography and use those assets almost like a massive battery to help balance the grid, that concept can work at any scale. So it can work at the scale of a building. Maybe you've got one building with five different assets that you want to perfectly orchestrate. Maybe you've got a neighborhood block that you want to orchestrate all of those different assets to balance the grid as a microgrid that can be islanded off from the rest of the system. That's the kind of environment we're trying to enable these utilities to move towards because a more distributed system is just going to be more reliable as we face more of these shocks from climate, be it heat, be it things in coastal communities or fires So indeed, maybe I'll put it another way. If we can digitize all of these different assets and equip the companies that are tasked by regulators to keep the lights on with all these digital technologies, we will have the ability to create these much more resilient and largely renewable microgrids that will make us more able to adapt to a warming world. But speaking of kind of the the skepticism about successfully staving off the worst impacts of climate change. I was listening to a podcast recently with uh, Michael Mann, who is a a climate scientist, popular communicator of climate science in a lot of mainstream, mainstream outlets. And he was saying that there, the fossil fuel industry, and I think he was um, likening this to other sort of maybe propaganda campaigns, if I may speak so straightforwardly. He was saying the fossil fuel industry has three strategies. So the first one is denial, which is to show that there was a debate that people, some people were having, is climate change even real? Is the planet even warming? Okay, we've proven that it's warming. Okay, so then it becomes, are humans the cause of it? Now, it's pretty hard to deny at this point that humans are the cause of the warming planet. So denialism isn't really that successful anymore. But the second one is division. You divide people, you get them arguing about things like the sort of carbon footprint of electric cars is a net negative or a net 
positive, the sort of things that you mentioned earlier that you sort of criticisms that you have heard. And then the third one is convincing people to be doomers so that there is no hope. Nothing will change. We're all screwed. So we might as well just keep burning carbon. And all three of them have the same outcome, which is business as usual. So if we accept that denialism is basically dead, how do we as people who want to change the status quo, who want to be positive, who believe that change can happen, how do we avoid becoming divided in the methods to do so or ultimately becoming doomers and just giving up, which a lot of people in my generation <laughs> seem to be doing I saw a tweet this morning on this exact topic that I would maybe suggest thinking about, which is 90% of the people working on the energy transition will never be doomers. And that's because for those of us who are actively working on this day in and day out, it just becomes embarrassingly clear that the technologies that we need to get us out of this mess, they're here. And it is the hard work of changing minds within key decision makers in government and within business to make the right choices, but it's absolutely doable. And so that's what keeps me going is just knowing that we have the solutions to take care of all this. There are other societal problems that are more on the, the cultural and trust front that I think we're far less equipped to deal with. Uh, if we're talking about levels of social inequality and, and uh, just how we treat each other as human beings that are real sticky and nasty, the energy transition is complicated, but there's no unknown. We know what we need to do. And I know as somebody's working on it, and for folks that aren't working on it, don't succumb to the doomerism online. For every doom tweet about climate or Instagram post or New York Times story, there's probably three more stories about how some company has just cracked a new technology that's going to give us low-cost, abundant, cheap, renewable energy for the next 10,000 years. So it's just those don't break through because the internet does prioritize negative stories. So I hope that's useful. That's what I can leave you with. Yeah. One thing that I, I often kind of think about is that even if things do get worse, that humanity and humans as a species are we're one of the most resilient species that has like ever existed and we're very intelligent and i have no doubt that humanity will continue to find a way i don't think civilization is going to collapse i don't think that a uh, species is going to die out which is sort of the more extreme examples that you hear uh, and there are entire subreddits devoted to these sorts of conversations but like we've survived meteor impacts we've survived ice ages i think we can survive a couple degrees of warming. It'll be hot. It'll be difficult. We're going to have struggles. We're already having struggles now, but I, I do have faith in humans as a species to ultimately come together and get through this crisis. Amen. Thanks for coming on. That was a great conversation. You know, I appreciate the level of detail you were able to provide in all of your answers. It was a really inspiring conversation. Well, and thank you guys. I've done a lot of these conversations and I almost never get this level of questions about climate and about actually asking what these enterprises are doing. That was awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I'm going to clip that and I'm going to blast that code <laughs> everywhere. But for real though, if for people who want to know more about Energy Web or want to follow what you or Energy Web is up to, where do they go to get all the alpha? 
energyweb.org is our website. We're on all the socials, uh, pick your poison, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Telegram, you name it. And we're out there and we're very active um, and feel free to get in touch. Awesome. And just to echo what Ray said, it's been an excellent conversation. It's clear that you know your shit, which is impressive and very important. And I think that also your sort of positive attitude toward this is very inspirational and is definitely needed. I think that people should certainly be aware of what the worst case could be so that we don't end up in that worst case. But I think it's important that we have people like you that are reminding folks that, look, like it's right there. There is a solution. It's there. We can do it. We can transition. The technology exists. It's just a matter of pulling ourselves up and building the collective willpower. And I think that we all have a role that we can play in doing that and advocating for decarbonization, just for, I guess, remaining committed to the cause and not falling into the trap of just giving up. And it sounds like you're doing an important role in uh, sort of prophetizing that. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat with you and your audience. It was great. The Agenda is hosted and produced by me, Ray Salmond. And by me, Jonathan DeYoung. You can listen and subscribe to The Agenda at cointelegraph.com slash podcasts or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and leave a review. You can find me on Twitter at Horace Hughes, H-O-R-U-S-H-U-G-H-E-S. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and just about everywhere else at MadDopeMatic. That's M-A-D-D-O-P-E-M-A-D-I-C. Be sure to follow Cointelegraph on Twitter and Instagram at Cointelegraph. 